Fantastic. Take your seats. Well, those of you who've been keeping up will know that it's part of our Summer Soapbox series. So we have some new, some fresh voices coming to speak. So this morning, we give a very good welcome to Belinda, who's coming to talk to us. Woo! That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. So um, when I had the very great privilege of standing here to speak to you this time last year, um, some of you might remember that I mentioned towards the end of the sermon that um, an accident had befallen one of our children. And I want to thank you so much for your prayers. Um, He's doing fantastically well. But I also have to admit that the intervening 12 months have been quite rough for my family. And there have been many, many happy times, of course. But there's also been a strange combination of sorrows and loss. And it's asked of me a really crucial question. Can I still genuinely grow in the love and trust of God and at a gut level still really believe that he is trustworthy and kind and all-powerful and all-loving amidst a catalogue of circumstances so shot through with pain and grief. And I'm sure that many of you have been or currently are facing some pretty stark realities as well. So the question is, how do we remain in a hope-filled, trusting relationship with God when dreams get broken or prayers seem agonizingly unanswered or life just seems really hard? And of course, this is a dilemma that has faced people of faith throughout all of history. And I found it fascinating, but also really useful in this season to see how individuals in the Bible dealt with just these same questions. So to this end, I'd love us to spend a few minutes looking at a really obscure moment in the life of a man called Paul, a man who was one of the very first missionaries in the first century spreading the word about Jesus. And the moment I want to focus on was during the second missionary journey, which he undertook with Luke, Silas, and Timothy, and it's recorded by Luke in the book of Acts in the New Testament. But before we read the passage, bear in mind that this journey was over 3,000 miles long. That's walking from here to Moscow and back, pretty much. So um, it was also across the hot, inhospitable terrain of first century Palestine, Turkey, and Greece. It took several years. So perhaps we could have the slide that shows that you can see some of the, the routes that they took from Antioch and Syria. That's where they started. And it was a huge and arduous investment of physical and emotional energy, of time, presumably of funds. But Paul and his friends had felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to leave Antioch in Syria and head west, um, and particularly to preach the gospel in the province of Asia Minor. So... Um, Let's just use our imaginations to enter into the searing heat, the dust, the weariness, the discomfort, the dirt that that must have entailed. And I know that we might have been a bit hot under the collar in our hitch and heat wave, but imagine what it would have been like then. And beyond that, which is just the physical discomfort, imagine not knowing where you were going to lay your head for several years. Imagine um, that you didn't know when or even if you would ever see your loved ones again, or what would happen if you got sick or you got arrested, arrested by hostile Roman authorities. So if we dig in, it's Acts 16, 6 to 14, and I'm just going to look at the first section to begin with. So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. 
When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. It's a pretty odd read, isn't it? And on the surface of it, it sounds an awful lot like false starts and and plan Bs of potential for disappointment, uh, frustration, confusion. But if we carry on, things start to improve in, in surprising ways. So the next part says, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia to help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And, you know, one of those women was Lydia. And Lydia was a well-known, successful, wealthy tradeswoman in that area. And she responded to the message about Jesus. And she and her whole household were baptized. And this is the moment that the, the gospel was rooted for the first time ever in the continent of Europe. What a cataclysmic moment in the history of the whole of Western civilization. And it came on the back of all this sort of slightly confused, false starts, not quite being in the right place at the right time, having God just give you a dream and then only just to kind of change it a bit. How amazing that is. And if we just track back a little bit, um, when they were still crisscrossing at that exhausting sounding route across Syria and Turkey with so little yet to show for their efforts, not knowing yet what lay just around the corner, how were they fueled with such astounding reserves of energy and passion? And I, this is a quick aside, but I really love it how this passage starts off in the calm, cool, third person reporting of Luke. But when he hears about the dream that God has given Paul, he breaks out into very sort of excitable first person. If you look back, it says, you know, he, this is what we were supposed to do. We, we packed our bags, we went, we, we concluded that this was what God was telling us. It's as if the very grammar of, of this text can't hold his excitement and his fervor and his passion. It literally breaks. It's something that a, a sort of a, a year three teacher at school would tell off a child for, for breaking their, their, the narration voice halfway through a passage. But this is just what happens. Luke can't contain himself in the words that he has. So what fueled this extraordinary fortitude and faith and passion during their journey? How did they respond so resiliently to disappointment and setback? So the first thing to note is that they simply didn't give up. They kept going. They kept journeying on with a clear sense of God with them. They were more committed, it seems, to the present experience of God and doing the very next thing in step with the Holy Spirit than trying to control the final outcome. That they seemed to leave to God. And because they didn't hitch their self-worth or their identity onto the human notions of, of success and achievement, they were able to stay much more in tune with God's love and God's leading and able to remain hopeful and open and not frustrated or angry or defeated. And I think there's such a lesson for us, isn't there, in our daily lives. We can all say, what, God, do you want to do today? What feels like the next right step? How can I live in your presence today with the people that I'm with or the job that I'm doing or the kids that I'm raising? 
So I want to say to you that if life feels a bit bewildering right now, or painful, or unclear, just as it has done for me several times this last year, then keep skin in the game. Don't give up in defeat. If the way ahead isn't gleaming and clear, please keep skin in the game. Keep open to the next right micro-step, if that's all that seems visible to you, know, to you now. And know that whatever your feelings are telling you, God never abandons you. He can't. It says in Scripture, he's our very ground of being, our source. He's closer than the breath in your lungs. He's your saviour who, who is with you in joy, but also in the depths of your suffering. And I don't think this is hyperbole or wishful thinking. I'm speaking from the pretty rough coalface of a, of a traumatic year. And I can honestly bear witness to the truths that Paul wrote about later when he said to the new believers in Rome, and you've actually heard this once already this morning, so I think God really wants to speak this to some of you. I am absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing, living or dead, angelic or demonic, High or low, today or tomorrow, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way Jesus, our master, has embraced us. And maybe, you know, all these centuries later, this morning in Hitchin, that is simply what your bruised heart needs to hear. So second of all, they trusted God. Paul, Luke, Silas and Timothy kept trusting that God knew what he was doing despite some pretty baffling and exhausting circumstances. And it really got me thinking, what is trusting God? really like In our actual lived out lives, how does it feel? I looked in the dictionary and some definitions of trust are like to believe that someone is good and honest and won't harm you or to hope and expect that something is true. But the best and most tangible and most tender description that I've heard recently is by a theologian called James Allison, and it's paraphrased here by the Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltzweber. And they say, faith and trust is most like relaxing. It's relaxing in the way that you relax in the presence of someone you are certain is fond of you. If you are in the presence of someone you are sure loves you, you're funnier, you feel free, you're more spontaneous, time might go by and you didn't even know it. I would add you can be more completely honestly yourself. You can even have the difficult conversations knowing that person will keep loving you. How much more with our Heavenly Father? So a quick detour here, you know, if um, being able to trust God, even wanting to trust God seems very hard to you right now, um, then actually it, that can be the case, especially if in the past we've been taught some pretty toxic stories about God's character. Or maybe if we've experienced the, the excruciating pain of human betrayal. Learning to trust God can take time and it can take space and that's absolutely okay. It's a deepening process over our whole lifetime after all. And at certain points, I think it can require kind and healthy community around us. And it certainly takes the restorative loving work of the Holy Spirit. But it is for you too. It's for all of us. And remember, it doesn't require 100% certainty or unassailable proofs. It is a loving relationship with Jesus that we're called to, not a neat set of beliefs cleansed of all questions or doubts. 
Thirdly and lastly, another quite obvious observation here, but they travelled as a group, didn't they? And we were never meant to live this life and work out our faith in isolation. We were designed to be in loving, healthy community together, encouraging one another along in friendship and belonging and love. So, when you're finding trust in God a challenge, would you let my trust carry you for a while? And would you do the same for me? I know that some of you have done exactly this for me this year. And I have actually experienced the love of God directly through your prayers and your kindness. And you know who you are. And that was the love of God to me. We can be that for each other. So if you look in the Psalms and in Lamentations or Job or Ecclesiastes, many other places in the Bible, we are allowed to wrestle with doubt. We are allowed to ask hard questions. We're allowed to grieve. We're allowed to express sorrow. God is big enough for all of it, but we don't want to get stuck there forever. Because here is the thing that sort of brings all of this together. While we are accepted and beloved of God exactly as we are, he actually loves us far too much to leave us as we are, clinging so often as we do to the cosy, gilded cages of our own comfort zones or locked in the pain of past experiences, right? To put it another way, in the good times and in the bad, he's always calling us out of those easy comfort zones of faith or those pain-filled patterns of behavior into deeper freedom and greater grace. Think of a baby who learns to roll over and then sit up and then to walk, at each stage breaking out of the familiar into the unfamiliar, into the unknown, to the downright wobbly sometimes. And in these moments of growth, there will always, always be mistakes as well as breakthroughs. There will always be bumps as well as shrieks of delight. The progress may be fast or it may need to be, slow and painstaking, but it is always pointing to wholeness and healing and transformation. And actually, I think that's what it is to be fully human, growing into the beautiful, wild potential that God has planted inside each and every one of us. Now, you may be familiar with this kind of diagram because in some form or another, it's been used by philosophers for several millennia. If you imagine all you know and are comfortable with inside the circle and all that is unfamiliar and new outside of the circle, and much of what you have inside of the circle of your knowledge and your experience will be beautiful, truth-filled foundations of your faith and your life. But if you're brutally honest, you will know that certainly I, I know for myself that there is likely to be much that is tinged with fear, with ego, and a myriad of unhelpful influences too. And I have simply added that, that diagonal trajectory of trust. And by that, I mean our trust in God, but also the utter trustworthiness of God himself, which I believe can propel us towards growth and deeper connection with Jesus. And I hope it might be a useful um, visual as we consider right now, are we ready to journey from the center to the edge of the circle in our lives, from what feels easy and comfortable, stretched out towards the new and unfamiliar, to embrace some vulnerability, some uncertainty, the occasional wobble, knowing that God and his unbreakable love for us will bring us through to the next stage of the journey. 
So are we prepared to embrace mystery and the willingness to admit that none of us, whatever our age, whatever our perceived stage of faith, um, we all, all are on a lifetime's journey to greater Christ-likeness. So living on the edge of the circle, one foot in what we feel comfortable with and the other one stepping out into the new is where we follow Jesus into the life and the work that he's calling us into. And no one ever promised that this feels easy all the time. You know, adventure and growth rarely do. But in everything, in all of it, we're held by the unstoppable love of God. And because of this, we can experience the discomfort of change and growth on the one hand, and yet grow increasingly secure in God on the other hand. And if that sounds a bit unlikely and miraculous, I think it's because it is. Knowing that we're utterly loved and safe in Christ at the deepest level of our souls and yet simultaneously grappling with discomfort and challenge in the rough seas of daily life is not the impossible paradox that it sounds. I think maybe it's simply a description of following Jesus. And I've observed over the last 30 years or so that individuals and communities that learn to humbly trust God's love for them become set alight with his energy and his spirit. They're marked by big-heartedness and humility. Even tiny communities on the move, like Paul and his friends, carry the authority and power of God's kingdom to transform the world around them and spill an overflow of hope and healing and peace into the lives of those that they come into contact with. And that leads me to my very last point this morning. The healing and peace and wholeness that we receive from God's unimaginable grace and kindness isn't just for us as individuals. It is also for every single person that we come in contact with. It's for the healing of the world. You're called to that, and so am I. So I leave you with the provocative question, dare we learn to place trust in God at the center of our lives and our decision-making, rather than our own comfort, our egos, our need for control. What would that actually look like in our lived out lives? What difference would it make to how we think and behave? You know, I know that I keep bumping against my own addiction to comfort, to my own desire to be right, to fit in. There's so many different ways. There's a challenge every day in this. Dare we risk a vulnerable inner posture to God of palms open, of surrender, knowing the realities of suffering and the tensions of living in this beautiful but often brutally broken world, knowing God will always love us and will never abandon us. This is the way of Jesus that we're all called to. So it's trust over comfort. <laughs>